Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gayomago land and I recognise their unceded sovereignty by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is supported by Uniting Mission and Education, part of the Uniting Church in Australia Synod of New South Wales and ACT. I thank them for their support. My guest today, who I'm very excited to talk to, is Matthew Thiessen. Matthew, welcome along. Thanks for having me, Liam. So uh, for those who don't know you, uh, you are Associate Professor of Religious Studies at McMaster's Univer- McMaster University. Um, that is the author of Contesting Conversion, Genealogy, Circumcision and Identity in Ancient Judaism and Christianity, which was uh, awarded the Manfred Lauchschläger Award for Theological Promise and Paul and the Gentile Promise. And he also has a number of edited volumes. Today, we are, I'm holding it up as if the people are watching this. Today, we are talking about his uh, very recent book through Baker Academic, Jesus and the Forces of Death, the Gospel's Portrayal of Ritual Impurity Within First Century Judaism, which is just an exceptional, really helpful, um, fruitful book, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Um, and so I guess where I thought I'd start is you, you mentioned in the kind of the preface, the book begins, or at least the idea for the book began with um, procrastination and distraction. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so talk to us a bit about the journey of this book, which I know actually like, you know, is a reasonably long journey, um, but a bit about how you got interested in this idea and I guess how it began to take shape once you were able to turn your full focus to it. Right. Yeah. So at the time that that this this sort of book idea came to me, I was working on the topic of circumcision in antiquity, uh, and uh, sort of got into ideas around uh, identity construction and its relation in especially ancient Judaism to things like purity. And so I was reading through the the very extensive works of Jacob Milgram, uh, sort of the finest the finest scholar on Leviticus and Numbers, um, and you know I hadn't really thought much about ritual purity and and Milgram had uh, this real sort of really nice treatment about it showing that sort of there are three uh, categories or three sources for ritual impurity um, something that often gets translated as leprosy it's not uh, but some sort of skin condition and then uh, genital discharges of blood and semen and then corpses are these three physical, sources for ritual impurity. And as I was working through that, I thought, I've never realized that the Gospels, or at least the synoptic Gospels, depict Jesus interacting with people who endure impurity from each of these three sources, sometimes multiple times, but at least once. And that's when, uh, that's sort of where this book idea came from, uh, that I and probably others had sort of missed out on uh, the, the ritual purity angle of the Gospels. And so this is where I wanted to, to write, but this is why I wanted to write this book. Mm, thank you for that. So so I guess a key, you know, way you're dealing with this is like, you know, what you observe early on is, you know, okay, there's this trend through Christian history that, that exists today of, okay, so, you know, the broader kind of question of what is the relationship of Christianity to what is called the Old Testament Um and particularly to these kind of ritual laws, so like Levitical and, and, and the laws in numbers. Um, and you kind of talk a bunch about that. And you're particularly focusing on ritual purity and this kind of idea that Jesus kind of came to abolish that system, um, right. that Jesus came to say, like, actually, that's that's missing the point. The point is compassion. The point is, you know, kinship and community and connection, you know. Like, um, and I think what's really important is your book is like, 
Absolutely not. <laughs> um, Jesus is is deeply, you know, concerned with ritual impurity um, and is seeking out to attack the source of ritual impurity. Um, so, I'm, so I'm interested to talk a bit about that in the sense of this idea that, you know, if Jesus isn't, if Jesus doesn't grant, um, uh, like legitimacy to this idea of ritual impurity, then you feel like it, that what he would deal with is telling everyone in the crowd to be like, stop treating this person poorly, um, rather than going like, I'm going to attack the thing that is essentially making you impure. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As you, as you say, I mean, this is a long, uh, Christian tradition and, and across, you know, internal Christian divides that, uh, Jesus has come to get rid of the law, all these things that modern Christians don't like. Well, great news, Jesus doesn't like them either. And as you said, uh, that contrast, and I think it's really uh, nefarious, this contrast between the law or parts of the law in compassion, that's sort of this insidious um, element of this reading of Jesus. Uh, and Paula Fredrickson, one of my, one of my favorite scholars, has, has uh, written an article called uh, compassion is to purity as fish is to bicycle. There's, there's no, there's no sort of organic uh, connection or contrast between them. And that's not how ancient Jews thought about it. And that's not how Jesus thought about it either. Mm. So uh, yeah, you're right. The, the interactions he has with them, it's, it's, they only make sense if you grant the, the, uh, the assumption that Jesus thinks these impurities exist and that they matter. Mm. What might be helpful, just as we kind of set the scene for this discussion, is to talk a bit about these categories. This is kind of your first chapter after the introduction. You kind of map the world of it. Um, and I thought what was really helpful was these kind of your work on these categories of, of holy and profane and pure and impure. Um, and and one thing you, you know, saying that's, you say is interesting is, you know, everything in the world is either holy or profane and everything in the world is either pure or impure. But at the same time, you can't mix up these categories. So help us understand, you know, for those of us who've maybe only ever just had a very vague understanding of what these words mean, um, yep. how are they kind of understood and how does that kind of help us maybe unpack some of the baggage we've been attaching yep. to it? Yeah. Uh, let me think how, how best to sort of attack <laughs> this question. Um, I mean, holiness just, you know, most basically has to do with something that's set apart. Uh, so what's set apart from common use? Whether it's Sabbath, mm. sacred time, holy time is set apart from the other six days of the week, and the other six days of the week are profane. Now, clearly, having just said that, profane doesn't mean what I think we often think it mm. means in, in, in modern English usage. It's not bad, obviously. Um, I wouldn't say Mondays are great. They might be bad, but Fridays are great. Uh, the weekend's great, but only one day is set apart for special use, and that mm. special use for Sabbath, at least, it requires rest and other things. Same with space. Um, and especially with God in the temple or tabernacle where God dwells, this is wholly set-apart space for God, and it has to be approached carefully. It doesn't mean anything else is negative. It just isn't uh, mm. as fraught with, with sort of meaning and, and, and purpose like holy spaces. So holy and profane, set-apart and just for common usage. Uh, and then... Distinct from that are these two categories of purity and impurity. They're not the same. It's very easy for, for scholars, uh, clergy, lay people, when they read 
whether it's Leviticus or the Gospels, to think, oh, holiness and purity are the same thing, and they're mm-hmm. absolutely not. Purity is actually, again, it's just sort of a state of being that that's really neutral. Um, it's the absence of something that makes you impure. It's impurity that's, uh, well, it, there's a, there, are, there are a couple of different categories within the concept of impurity. Uh, ritual impurity, which I've already mentioned, goes back to three different physical sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what keeps you from, or should keep you from entering into holy space. You don't want to bring ritual impurities into holy space. Apart from ritual impurity, there's moral impurity. So sin. Mm. Uh, these are distinct types of impurity. Even though the language is exactly the same, they function differently, though. Moral impurity has to do with sinful actions. Ritual impurity never has to deal with an action. It's actually just something you get from a physical source. And it's mm. essentially, it's, it's um, unavoidable in one's life. You're going to contract ritual impurities. It's natural. It's common it's not that big a deal as long as you deal with it correctly moral impurity is a choice you never have to sin uh you choose to sin and uh those choices have large large consequences over the long haul so those are the major two types of impurity Mm. as interesting you brought up the the, we were talking about the compassion thing you kind of make the point that um you know that there is a kind of compassion to thus the boundaries Yep. that are, are set up in terms of particularly, you know, about approaching the temple or, or, or the like, you know, because there is this kind of idea of, you know, because of God's holiness and power, there is a a danger of approaching uh, improperly. Um, and, and so, you know, in some ways these, these kind of systems are set up in order to, you know, protect um, in order to, to, you know, reorient people so they can kind of, you know, return kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if, if uh, you or, or uh, listeners have watched that really fascinating, frightful Chernobyl series. <laughs> um, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. And that, I, I think there's a comparison there mm. to uh, how ancient Israelites, especially priests, thought about God's presence. Mm. Radio, uh, you know, um, radiation can be positive. Nuclear energy can be very good. But if it's approached in the wrong way, it's very exceedingly dangerous. Mm. And, uh, you know, especially now, if you're going to try to go in the um, in the forbidden zone around Chernobyl, you want to do so in the correct way. It's not a lack of compassion. It's not a lack of concern for humans. Don't go there. That's not mean. It's actually deeply concerned about the repercussions of approaching this source of power the wrong way. Don't do it the wrong way or you're going to regret it. And so that um, those restrictions are compassionately driven, <laughs> theoretically at least. And that's how the priests are thinking about approaching God in, in God's tabernacle or temple. Mm-hmm. Approach correctly or you will suffer, God might leave, and then the whole nation suffers. And so these restrictions, they aren't punitive. They're not, um, you know, there's no joy in the restrictions themselves per se. It's a, we need these to dwell safely with this God who's, all powerful in good ways, but in potentially bad ways too, or, or mm. dangerous ways. Mm. Thank you. So, so we've kind of just established in one way, the importance of wrestling with this is to you know, understand the world that's going on that Jesus walks into to address um, some level of the, you know, 
anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish attitudes toward law and and and, and the like. Um, but also, I mean, I think a key claim of the book is, I mean, if you want to understand Jesus of the Gospels mm. and Jesus' identity to the Gospel writers, then understanding the importance and the the nature um, and the approach to ritual impurity is key. Um, and and so you talk, you know, particularly about Jesus as this force of God's holiness, this embodiment of God's holiness that is kind of let loose on the world to strike at um, ritual impurity. So can you talk a little about how how Jesus' identity um, is shaped and reframed um, th- through this work that you're doing? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's so much I could say here, so let me try to be brief. <laughs> in, in the first a miracle or deed of power that Jesus performs in Mark's gospel. It's in the synagogue on a Sabbath, and he comes upon a man who's with or in an impure spirit. And the man with the impure spirit says to Jesus, uh, I know you are the Holy One of God. And right there you see that language, two of those categories from, from priestly thought, holiness and impurity. Uh, I didn't mention this, and I'll mention it briefly now, uh, in priestly thought, holiness and impurity are forces. Mm. Uh, they're, they are active. They're dynamic. And when they come into contact, uh, things happen. Sparks fly. So you should expect any ancient reader hearing holiness and impurity should think, uh-oh, what's going to go on here now? Mm. And the language that, that this spirit uses is actually the language of, of contestation, of battle, of, of fighting. Mm. Uh, what's there between you and me? Uh you got a problem with me or something like that would maybe be a colloquial way to, to, to put it. Uh, I think, so what I think this language of holiness and impurity, thinking of Jesus as this dynamic and mobile force of holiness bouncing around in a world filled with impurities, ritual, moral, and spiritual impurities uh, conveys is something slightly different from, uh, you know, sort of traditional and central views of Jesus as, um, well, saving, but not, not saving from what is one thing. And forgiveness of sins is, is great. It's actually dealing with moral impurities. Uh, mm. But I, I think this depiction of Jesus where you focus on impurities, impurities in Jesus as a holy one, reframes it in a way to think of Jesus in terms of a large-scale uh, purification mission. Mm. Um, that salvation is, uh, deliverance is deliverance from impurity and of of whatever sort. And so this is, I think, you know, one of the central aspects that modern readers don't necessarily pick up on because purity systems aren't so central to the way we talk generally, or if they are, they're, they're skewed very differently than they were in the ancient world. So I think that's really central to what the gospel writers are doing. Mm. Uh, if, if you'll give me a little bit of liberty, I should expand on what, what yeah. Milgram and others have said about impurity. Uh, and I think this, so this connects to why purification mission equals salvation mm. or deliverance for Milgram and for others. Uh, the question is, well, why are these three things, the skin condition, mm-hmm. uh, why are genital discharges and why are corpses impure? ritually impure out of all the things out there. Why just these three things? And Milgram's argument is, well, they're all associated with death. We hear this about uh, the skin condition. Um, Miriam, Moses's sister 
contracts uh, the skin condition and is compared to someone who's dead. Josephus talks about uh, people who have this are like corpses. Um, rabbinic literature does as well. So there seems to be this connection between the skin condition, which is sort of white and flaky, kind of corpse-like. Mm. Uh, genital discharges of blood and semen are the loss of, of life uh, fluids, life force. And then, of course, corpses, well, they're corpses, they're dead. And so for Milgram, impurity must represent the forces of death, which is, that's where you get the title for the book. Um, and holiness, thus, as its opposite, represents life. And so there's this, really, it's it's... Uh, for us, it's coded. I think for ancient readers, it's less coded. There's this battle between the forces of life and death in the Gospels. And the whole point is, it's really the overcoming of, of Jesus's overcoming of death. Mm. Um, and in uh, a world filled with death death forces. Yeah, I, I definitely want to come right to that in a second, about, you know, particularly how that shapes how we think about crucifixion and resurrection. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but before that, I want to talk about the, because um, I think it, it helps with this, is that, you know, the story of the woman with the discharge who touches Jesus, yeah. Is clear, yeah. right? Because yeah. um, you've talked about how, you know, ritual impurity is not something you've chosen to do. It's just something that happens to you. It's just like, a, you know, coming into contact with bodies, the thing that just, just changes your category. Um, yeah. And so you kind of talk about Jesus is, you know, such this force of holiness that he, in, in some ways he is also a contagion, um, yeah. but but for holiness, right? He's not choose, he doesn't choose to um, put out his power onto this woman. Yeah. It just happens. Um, now, this is a few ways I want to go here. I want to talk a bit about that idea of Jesus as this kind of almost, again, um, unmotivated contagion that, yeah. that can do this. But, and also, I guess, this idea of, because you talked before about how holiness and impurity come together and sparks fly. Yeah. And here's a woman who's ritually impure, reaching out and touching something holy, which is going to evoke, you know, stories of Uziah and, and others. Um, yeah. And I'm thinking about what the readers think there as, Oh, is she about when especially when Jesus starts to ask who did it and come before yeah. me? Is she about to die? Um, wow. So, so yeah, I just want to talk a little about that story. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and it's, this sort of goes to all of the stories. We expect, based on Leviticus, that the rules are when impurity comes into contact with holiness, it's actually the holiness which retreats or does something. If mm. you fill the temple with enough impurity, God leaps. That's why you need to maintain the system. Uh, some impurities can build up, but after a while, God will, will, will fly the coop, which is exactly what he does in Ezekiel. Mm. What we get in the gospel depiction, starting with Mark, is, is something different. Uh, we would expect in, in a normal situation, the impurity of, for instance, this hemorrhaging woman to be conveyed to Jesus. Probably. Mm. Uh, there might be some some questions around how exactly things move, but probably this, this uh, impurity should move to Jesus. What you don't expect is the opposite to happen. Uh, Jesus, who's pure, uh, results in the other woman becoming pure, or results in the woman becoming pure. Of course, it's not just that Jesus is pure. Purity has no power. It's just a, a, a neutral condition. It's the holiness. And it's the holiness which doesn't retreat. Here it's pushing out, and it's the impurity that retreats or is, is just destroyed. So uh, it's a remarkable story of uh, that whatever is going on, the rules of the game, the rules that, that uh, God set up, according to Israel's priests for the temple, aren't the same rules that are happening now in this newly embodied force of holiness, Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now death is on the retreat. 
impurity is on the retreat. And this woman who, uh, you know, boldly on some level and, and frightened on another level, I mean, the, the stakes might be a bit high here. She might touch Jesus and might be conveying impurity to him if this fails. And he may not even know it because she's doing it furtively. So what happens if he then brings this impurity into other contexts? Bad things could happen. But she's she still reaches out and touches him, and this force just blasts out of him in Mark and Luke following Mark without his permission. It just shoots out like a force of nature. Uh, there are electrical wires outside my window here. If I grab them, they don't choose to zap me. They just zap me. And that's exactly what happens with Jesus. He knows it happens. He feels it, but he doesn't give permission for it to happen. And he doesn't know who caused it in the story, which is really, you know, a remarkable uh, account, I think. Um, so it, I think it's a really wonderful story overall. Mm. and really, really depicts some of the uh, aspects of, of this holy force that I really wanted to get across in the book. Yeah. And then I guess immediately he goes then to the, the, third kind of ritual impurity and that he goes to a, a young girl who has died. He goes and he goes right. and, and, and comes upon a corpse. And I guess, again, shows that his force of holiness is enough to overcome. Um, yes. This, this other impurity, this, this, this other force of death uh, yeah. being, being death itself. Yeah. Yeah. In, in later rabbinic literature, and I mentioned this briefly in the conclusion of the book, uh, the three strongest forces of impurity, uh, mm-hmm. In, uh, no, it's in a different order. It's, um, I think it's in a different order. I got to remember this now. Shoot, I wish I had, I wish I had refreshed my memory. But the three, the three top, I won't, I will not uh, create a I, I remember, but I'll, I cannot, I'll, I'll... I cannot remember the order. But the three highest sources are a, a, a female genital discharger, like this woman we just mentioned in Mark 5. Uh, a person with this skin condition in Greek, it's called lepra. And then a corpse. And so, and corpse is the strongest of all of them. Uh, you can't wash away, you can't make a corpse ritually pure. It's a corpse. Uh, the only way to make it ritually pure is to make it not a corpse anymore. And, and, you know, not too many people have that ability. So these are very strong forces of impurity. And the gospel writers are depicting Jesus destroying these sources of impurity uh, in, in all three instances. Yeah. And I think you say in that conclusion that I think in, in Mark, he does it in the same order that they're kind of, um, talked about in numbers, yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah. So, That's so right. Mark, Mark is very much like obviously the writer of Mark is very much aware of that and is 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 patterning it to to make this point very clear. Yep. Um, so then we come to Jesus' own death, I guess, where where as we, so he, so he's, he's able to deal with a corpse that's external to him. We've seen that. Um, so what does it mean then that death actually kind of overcomes Jesus' body? Yeah. You know, since the, the the impurity is now upon him and seems to have. One, the force of death seems to have taken, and then Israel God, Israel's God raises him, and, and, and I guess that that is this final kind of that even that that, that impurity is is that holiness bursts forth even from yeah. the grave. Yeah, yeah. Mark, Mark, and uh, Matthew and Mark don't show this in quite the same way that no, sorry, did I say Matthew? Mark and Luke don't show this mm-hmm. in quite the dramatic way that Matthew does, and I mentioned this in the book. It's at the very moment of Jesus' death, the very moment he becomes a corpse in ritually impure, uh, or should become ritually impure, mm. all of a sudden, corpses are popping up mm. uh, like mushrooms after a rainstorm. Um, it's a very, it's exactly what shouldn't happen. 
what's happened in Jesus's death on the cross is more ritual impurity has entered the world, entered the cosmos. Mm. But what Matthew is claiming is no, actually, this is when life shoots out into new, into places where there is death, into tombs where there are corpses, the corpses of the holy ones, the saints, as it gets translated, are raised, and then they come into the holy city of Jerusalem after Jesus is raised. And so the whole the whole point is where Rome intended to kill, where death looked like it had won and beaten the holy one, uh, no, that didn't happen. This has actually uh, enabled new forms of life to flourish. Um, and of course, yeah, in Mark, in Mark and Luke, you don't get that dramatic scene, but you get Jesus raised from the dead. Um, and, and then over, obviously overcoming death again. Mm. Um, it's interesting that we, you know, you've talked about in the title, obviously these are forces, um, uh, holiness and purity of forces. And I was thinking about, whether, like, because there's obviously a lot of, you know, we've done some podcasts about this with, with scholars of Paul who will talk particularly about, like, you know, sin and death and evil as powers, as kind yeah. of forces. And I'm curious about whether you thought much about, like, is is this a kind of, like, um, complementary kind of understanding in, in a sense? Or or do you think um, kind of when that kind of understanding of what Paul's doing is a, is a totally, he's talking about something totally different? Or do you think that kind of, yeah, carries across and that these these with different language and what Jesus is, is confronting uh, our forces with some sense of agency or at least, um, yeah. yeah, something. I don't, I don't see, I'm not entirely sure what to do with the sort of apocalyptic school of Paul that thinks death is this apocalyptic force mm -hmm. personified or whatever. Um, there's, I think there's an element there that's, I mean, dead on. Uh, but I'm not entirely sure if I'd go quite as far as that. Mm. I don't think the gospel writers, though, are at least we don't they don't give us evidence that death is uh, some force or power mm. itself. But it's connected to forces and powers. So where you get in Leviticus, it talks about holiness as a force and impurity as a force. But they're not, you know, there's no name given to them. You know, maybe Israel's God, but that's it. You get in the Gospels, Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit, and then you get all these impure spirits. You have these personal uh, forces, these uh, superhuman beings at, at battle. And so I think this, it's related to what we see in Paul, mm -hmm. um, for sure. And that I think Paul is, and, and again, I think we, we miss this, I think in some ways in Paul. Paul is equally concerned about showing uh, and, and this we gets it gets buried under, especially since the Reformation, justification by faith debates, uh, which you know they're there in Paul. But the whole point is that uh, in Romans four has this great line. I think most of us connect justification with Jesus's death. Hmm. Romans four twenty five twenty six. Uh, I'm bad with verses. <laughs> um, it's in there. Romans four uh, associates justification with Jesus being raised from the dead. Mm. It's actually resurrection is, is the end point, both for Jesus in Paul and for, and for those in Jesus. Uh, salvation is all about resurrection. This is what the whole message ultimately is moving towards. So that victory over death, which of course we read about in first Corinthians 15 in, in quite full detail, that's very similar, I think, to what 
we see in narrative form in the Gospels. Mm. Thanks. So I was thinking about how, so that the hemorrhaging woman and the and the and the young girl who has died right after that, or pretty much right after that, Jesus sends out the twelve um, wow. with the, um, the the thing of go and cast out unclean spirits. Like so, they're sent yeah. out in his authority to to I guess I guess um, confront these forces of impurity on their own. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm yeah, curious what you think about the way then how this maybe reframes what is the charge given to Jesus' disciples and and how that's to look for for them and, and perhaps and future disciples going forward, how this reshapes what we think about that that commissioning. Yeah. The easiest way to answer this is, is to to pop into something like Acts of the Apostles, mm-hmm. right? It's it's this it's Luke's sequel at least. Uh, but I think Paul also has this. Jesus is the Holy One of God. Mm-hmm. One of Paul's favorite words for believers is holy ones. Mm-hmm. And so he sees these as believers, those in, in Jesus, as these little holy forces. And, of course, he uses the language in 1 Corinthians and Romans of, of well, 1 Corinthians of temple language. Mm-hmm. You're, you're actually embodying uh, God's holy presence on earth or Christ's holy presence on earth. And this is now, so what's happened between the Gospels where you have the disciples who are generally bumbling and ineffective, not perfectly ineffective, but pretty darn ineffective. <laughs> and then you jump into Acts where, of course, Acts 2, we have the Holy Spirit descend. All of a sudden they're empowered by this, uh, again, this force of holiness in their, in their bodies mm. that is allowing them. And Acts makes this clear over and over again. If you look closely at the language between Luke and Acts, where they're just, they're just copying Jesus over and over again. Mm-hmm. We don't get, and this, this irritates me. I wish Luke and I could sit down and talk about this. I would love for Luke to talk about uh, leproid, these people with skin conditions. You don't get that in mm-hmm. Acts. But you get raising the dead, mm-hmm. and you get casting out uh, impure spirits. You get some of this purification mm-hmm. mission continuing, but it's it's not Luke. I mean, Luke isn't... Um, you know, entirely bound by what he's done with Jesus. He's showing some of the details of how now it's gone from one person to 12 and to a whole bunch more mm. who are bouncing around and doing, bringing life where death reigned previously. Mm. And so of course, Paul's, Paul's the same. Mm. Uh, it's all about now there are multiple locations of and forces of holiness bouncing around on earth doing these amazing things. Yeah. I'm curious then, I also think I just make sparks in my mind thinking then about what does it mean then for those who, who are after Christ yeah. um, to become impure? Like, because yep. Paul obviously is concerned about that, in, in, you know, um, in the behavior he sees and, and in some of his yeah. injunctions. And, um, but obviously, there's also a shift in, in how impurity is now maybe yeah. thought about or, or addressed. So, yeah, I'm curious a bit about. That, that's just what I, that was the first thing I thought. Oh, as you, as you're talking no, about. it's a great question. Um, so Paul in Acts undergoes purification, and mm. so do others. In Paul's own letters, this is one of the things with the Gospels. The Gospels aren't saying, you know, they're not giving commands for for two generations down the road or whatever, or at least not clearly. And it's sort of hard to know. Okay, Jesus is doing this. What does this mean? Uh, after Jesus' resurrection, they don't they don't state that clearly. And it'd be nice if they did, but that's not the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul, in his letters, is addressing non-Jews, 
And so I think that complicates things because uh, for Jews, ritual impurity doesn't actually apply to non-Jews. They can't get into the temple precincts anyways, or at least close enough where, where being ritually impure matters. So that's not on the table. But Paul does, does talk about one time ritual impurity uh, around, well, I think, it, I think it's implied. Uh, people in Corinth are saying we, gotta, we, we can't have sex, which makes a heck of a lot of great sense. If you're a temple of uh, mm-hmm. holiness, you can't be having sex. And so they're taking Paul's language of temple, uh, you're a temple, and saying, well, there, go, there goes that aspect of our, of our lives. And if we're holy ones, we're like the angels, we're sons of God, we're angelic, we should be living a sort of an angelic life, which you do see, and it continues for a screaming Christianity. And Paul pushes back saying, well, no, you mean you gotta have, you got to have sex because you're still mortal and it's going to lead into moral problems because you're going to end up sinning. If you don't have, you know, sex within the right, the right space in Paul's mind. But he says, don't, you know, hold off for a time if you're going into like a time of prayer. So there's this sort of, I I think, idea of you're approaching the holy through prayer, Mm -hmm. lay off sex for a while, which is Mm kind of like approaching Sinai where you don't have sex in Exodus. So I think there's something going on there. Mm -hmm. All that to say, when you move beyond the New Testament, you do see I mean, it's an interesting thing. And in, in there's a scholar, um, uh, uh, he's now at Tübingen, Holger Zellenton, who's, who's got a book, a huge book on this, showing how frequently later Christian writers still think um, ritual impurity matters. Now it doesn't matter in relation to the Jerusalem temple, but it does matter into wherever God, God's presence resides on earth. For instance, communion. <laughs> mm. uh, there, are, there are all kinds of little texts where you see either the author agreeing or disagreeing, but showing it's a live debate about whether we can take part in communion if if we, you know, if a woman just gave birth or mm. is menstruating or whatever. Um, and so that stuff, it's, it continues because they're applying it to, to the new locations of holiness in Christian thinking. Mm. Um, and it's, it's actually, I was going to say it, it, it you know, took century, a few centuries to answer that question and come to some sort of uniformity, but that's not true. It's, it's actually, it still continues um, mm. in different, in different churches to this day around uh, certain types of, of ritual impurity and approaching holiness. Mm. Um, I just want to briefly touch on, we don't have to go into it too much because um, sure. you know, people will get the book and that's how they'll find out more about it. But um, yeah. it, it, it's interesting the way that, again, this, we kind of talked about how this open, you know, opens up how we think about Jesus' identity, how we interpret crucifixion, resurrection. Um, but you also kind of follow into like how this affects how we think of um, or exorcism, we talked about, but Sabbath, and then yeah. in an appendix, um, dietary laws. So, so you know, it, it's interesting the way I guess these threads open. Was that something that you kind of anticipated early on, or was that like? Oh, it's just I have to <laughs> I have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, uh, and and I guess how did that was it kind of surprising for you how how you know following these threads and really diving deep then influenced thinking about Sabbath and dietary laws and or yeah. was that kind of already there from the beginning? Uh, Sabbath to a degree, mm-hmm. but you know here I'm talking about holiness and impurity. These categories still matter in relation to ritual impurity, and I'm thinking you know, a lot of the controversies, controversy stories in the gospels are around Jesus on Sabbath, Mm -hmm. sacred time, holy time. Uh, 
Is he really concerned about ritual impurity, but not sacred time? So it sort of logically followed. I have to deal with this. Mm. Um, and as it turns out, again, it's connected very closely, I think, to, again, life triumphing over death. Sabbath is for, for life uh, and for rest. And any sort of observance of the Sabbath that isn't life-giving is, uh, for Jesus, not Sabbath, not true Sabbath. Mm. And, and later rabbis have similar claims around that. Um, preservation of life and human life is more important than, uh, you know, perfect Sabbath observance <laughs> or not working. There are certain mm. works you do on the Sabbath because they are, are more important, mm. um, you know, with the, the appendix, and I, I made it an appendix because I really didn't want to put it in the book, but I just knew if I don't deal with this, and I think it's, I think it's in, in many ways the hardest passage to deal with, and, and, I, and I'm not sure how many people will be convinced by it, but um, there's this language of impurity in, in relation to food and consumption, and it looks like, if I don't deal with it, it looks like I'm just avoiding it. Sure. I don't think it's it's a different type of impurity. It's not ritual impurity. It's it's dietary law, dietary food purity, which is actually a sort of a third category of impurity, ritual, moral, and food purity. Um, and so I thought, well, I better just treat this. And you know, I think I think it's the right interpretation of the passage, but I also know it's uh I'm in a very tiny minority <laughs> thinking that that Jesus still thinks people Jews uh, should eat kosher food. Um, it's just that there's a Pharisaic and rabbinic innovation that he's dealing with there around washing hands before eating pure food. So it's not about making all foods clean, uh, mm. pure, uh, kosher. So, well, breaking kosher, non-kosher, but about eating kosher food in a particular way that Pharisees and, and later rabbis decided mm. that they, they ought to do. Okay. Yeah. So thinking about coming kind of, starting to land the plane um i'm thinking about like I, if, for those who are listening who are preachers um, which i know is a decent cohort really get the book it, it is it is tremendous and i think it is really helpful um but i guess i was thinking about you know as you think about those who who, who you have a nice story about the lectionary um yeah. and and and, and long time listeners know i have a <laughs> a somewhat strained relationship with the lectionary. Um, when you talk about, you went to preach on um, Genesis 17, which is, you know, a passage, a chapter, you know, very much concerned with circumcision. But if you, if you went there that day and, and heard what was actually, you know, read, if the, just the lectionary part was read, then you'd, you'd have no idea that was the case. Um, but so, so we get these texts that sometimes will, especially in the gospels, ritual impurity will be there. Um, or sometimes, it, you know, if we're in the Old Testament, it won't be, you know, and short of trying to like basically, playing this interview for your congregation just to really prime them up before you start your sermon. I guess if you're thinking about like just, just like little guiding advice, that's not even the stuff that you kind of preach on, but guides the way you think about preaching yeah. when you come yeah. to these passages in the gospel or, or potentially in, in, in other parts of scripture. Um, what are things I think you, yeah, you would, you would hint toward look for in the reading or just or being aware of as you, as you progress? I know it's a very big question, but and, yeah. and obviously the best answer is buy the book. So you really got your head around it all, but yeah, yeah. just trying to think about that kind of stuff. And it, I mean, this kind of also yeah. goes for folks who are just reading their Bibles at home devotionally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so let me, let me talk specifically sort of around the question of anti-Judaism mm -hmm. in, in Christian preaching theology. It's, it's uh, pretty much everywhere. I think uh, it's almost ubiquitous. Let's put it that way. 
And it, sometimes it's on, people are just unaware. So I think there are maybe three things I could say. One, it's not mine. I'm still, this is what Amy Jill Levine, who uh, is a Jewish scholar of the New Testament who teaches at a, a Protestant seminary, Vanderbilt, uh, tells her students that when you're preaching, think about my Jewish uh, grandkids in the, the first pew. What you say about Jews and Pharisees, they're hearing it. Uh, and I think that's a really helpful piece of advice. Be careful how you talk about Jews, even in ancient texts, because that often uh, has implications for modern living flesh and blood Jews and not positive ones, mm-hmm. um, if, if appropriated wrongly. That's one thing. I think the second thing, there are controversy stories in the Gospels. There's no doubt about it. Um between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it's very easy, and you see it all the time, you hear the language of that's pharisaical, mm. or pharisaic, a person's a Pharisee. Uh, there's even a game out there called the Pharisee. Um, and it's a negative, it's a Christian game. Uh, Pharisees are almost always, that language is used as a negative. Uh, kind of like, you know, one would use, I mean, it's even stronger, a Nazi. There's no such thing as a good Nazi. If you're a Nazi, you're bad. Mm. Um, but to say, we can't, you can't use the word, Pharisee that way. Mm. And that the controversies between Jesus and Pharisees or Sadducees or others are inner Jewish mm. um, debates and they're halakhic debates and they get heated. Uh, you know, I don't know a whole lot about Christianity in Australia. I, I've lived in the States enough. Um, now I don't. But to know that, you know, Christian debates in the South and the States get uh, pretty heated. Um and sometimes it's more rhetorical than it, well, sometimes, not always. <laughs> it's more rhetorical than it is like, uh, you know, yeah. sub- substantive. And so those debates, I think, are, they look heated. Uh, they're inner Jewish debates. And when we appropriate them in our modern world, there's a, there's a translation that needs to happen. And if mm-hmm. we don't do it carefully, what was inner Jewish debate and, you know, potentially or possibly not, problematic turns into something very problematic and anti-Jewish when we use these mm. debates and, and make sort of claims and polemical remarks. So I think that's another thing. The other thing, and this goes back, I think, to law and compassion, purity, compassion. Um, if you are like me in any way, uh, I'm still, I think, at heart, uh, I wish I was a 14-year-old or 16-year-old teenager. Um, and that's not because my high school experience was all that good. I just want that irresponsibility. But I remember the rules and regulations my parents gave me as really onerous and difficult. Uh, for me, law is almost universally a negative thing. Uh, and that's how I think Protestant Christianity especially has talked about law. Mm. Well, that's not, of course, the reality. I am now a parent. I try my best. I fail repeatedly. But the laws I give my kids are really meant to keep them, A, alive and be, you know, healthy and C, hopefully flourishing and growing into kind, loving humans um, someday down the road instead of the narcissistic uh, gremlins they are today. Um, So and that's, I think, how we have to think about law, all aspects of Jewish law are around those things. And so to think about law more positively and not as, um, you know, just harsh legalistic restrictions, but life intended for life. I think that really helps 
when you're looking at, you know, Old Testament passages or New Testament passages. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you for that. Well, the book, folks, is Jesus and the Forces of Death, the Gospel's portrayal of ritual impurity within first century Judaism, out now with Baker Academic. Uh, on the back, there's a lovely little pull quote of compelling and wonderfully written, which I endorse uh, and say amen to that. It is really great. Uh, and I and I've, I think even, yeah, just, just get the book. It's, it's really terrific. Um, is there anything else you want to, anything else you want to promote or draw people's attention to at this moment? I think so. Thanks so very much for having me on. No, oh, you're welcome. It's been great. Um, well, folks, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you all next week. Bye.